Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Welcome to the fourth episode of Running Mates. As always, I'm your host, Lars Emerson, and I am joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. How's it going, folks? This is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. And this week, the groovy 70s have ended, and it's time for the totally tubular 1980s. We are talking about the 1980 vice presidential election this week between Jimmy Carter and his VP, Walter Mondale, challenged by Ronald Reagan and his VP pick, George H.W. Bush. I'm going to set the scene for us, Mike. Let's do it. For, for 1980. Big year. Big year. Jimmy Carter, obviously the incumbent president, but things aren't going so well domestically. High unemployment and inflation, what we call stagflation, they're plaguing the... I should, this is just like a Hamilton. High unemployment <laughs> and inflation, what we call stagflation, are plaguing the nation. And the Iran hostage crisis is killing Carter's credibility abroad. So he's not having a lot of success domestically or in foreign policy. Or at least it doesn't look good for him. Yeah. I, I think history's been kinder to him than people were at the time. Mm-hmm. Spectacularly right. unlucky. Right. Um, yeah, you also have energy crises, all these foreign policy difficulties, and then the U.S. boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics, which sort of led to, to this perception that Carter is weak and he's he's mm. got like this presidency that's yeah. that's dying. He did it because he, he boycotted because this to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. So Carter's not looking so good. He's got an approval rating possibly as low as 28 percent. Polling was not as good in those days. He is challenged in his own party's primary by Ted Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, and of course the brother of John F. Kennedy. It's it's interesting. Like (laughs) Ted Kennedy's come up a couple times now, and it's like they thought he was going to run last time, and he was like, "No, I'm not going to run in '76. You know, I'll I'll let it be." But he's decided the best time to run for the top of the ticket is when you already have an incumbent president. So he challenges Carter, and, and he comes out like with this fiery vengeance against his own party's president. Carter kind of maybe doesn't take it seriously enough at first. Carter says, uncharacteristically of this evangelical Christian president, that he would whip his ass. Yeah, coming from a guy who thought it was a sin that he had lust in his heart. That's, that's, that's pretty stern words. A lot of weird, a lot of weird Carter quotes out there. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the lingering Iran hostage crisis proved a threat to the presidency, and Kennedy was able to secure several states as perception kind of started to grow that Carter was just bungling the crisis. It went on for like a year. It's like initially Carter pulled very well. It was like, oh, these Americans like a rally around the flag. But then as it went on, things got worse for him. Nonetheless, Carter still won 36 states and he had a compelling delegate lead. But Kennedy like refused to drop out until the penultimate day of the convention. Ted Kennedy is actually the last person to defeat an incumbent president in a state in a party primary. Fun Mm. fact. Anyway, at the convention, Kennedy delivers his kind of famous, the dream shall never die speech, but he eventually does concede. But his enthusiastic, more liberal supporters would then go on to let Carter down in the general election. Shades of Reagan and Ford, 1976. Yes, or kind of Bernie and Hillary in yeah, 2016. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us about the Republicans? Right, so speaking of Reagan, uh, he is the frontrunner going to the race. Former governor of California, Ronald Reagan. I think we've talked about him pretty much every episode so far. Um, he was the odds-on favorite. In fact, he was such a heavy favorite that his campaign thought it would be a good idea to run what they called a above-the-fray strategy, where they really didn't participate in any of the sort of, like, candidate forums or debates 
or kind of like Iowa straw poll like events in the in you know the the months leading up to the actual primaries themselves. They thought they were in such a good position they didn't have to. That wasn't exactly true because George H.W. Bush, the former director of the CIA and kind of Reagan's chief opponent, was doing those things, and he actually ended up pulling up a very slim win in the Iowa caucuses. Proves to be kind of a wake-up call for Reagan, who's not just facing off Bush. He's also facing off Illinois Congressman Phil Crane, another Illinois Congressman, John Anderson, um, Tennessee Senator and Senate Minority Leader Howard Baker, and then also former Secretary of the Treasury John Connolly, as well as Senator Bob Dole, who was, of course, Ford's vice presidential nominee. A lot of names we talked about last episode. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, a- after after losing Iowa, Reagan, he, he, he starts running a bit harder, and this leads to this very, this, this, this kind of turning point in the primary, this very bizarre thing where the Nashua Telegraph newspaper in New Hampshire wanted to sponsor a debate, but there was some question as to whether or not a newspaper sponsoring a debate violated election rules. I don't really know how that's possible since I think every debate nowadays is sponsored by like TV stations. Hmm. It's very unclear to me what exactly was happening, but basically Reagan ended up bankrolling the debate, which feels more problematic than a newspaper doing it. Yeah, the point weird. is Reagan ended up officially paying for the debate. Initially, this was just to be a, a debate between Reagan and Bush, but Reagan thought it'd be a great idea to invite everybody else to come as well. Bush did not know this was happening until, like, the day of the debate. So he gets there and he sees, like, Howard Baker and Phil Crane and all these people. And he's like, what the hell is going on? I thought it was just going to be the two of us. And so it was kind of chaos in this, like, I think it's like a high school gym in New Hampshire. Bush is refusing to debate Reagan unless all the other people leave. And this is all happening on stage. People are arguing on stage. It's like, Reagan and Bush are at podiums. And, like, everyone else is kind of shuffling around in the background. It becomes a whole big thing. And then... The guy who's kind of the moderating the debate, he tries to cut off Reagan's microphone. And Reagan says, I'm paying for this microphone, Mr. Green, which kind of like gets everybody all excited. This is pure chaos. Eventually, it does just become Reagan and Bush. But what this kind of has the effect of doing is it turns a lot of the other candidates against Bush because he refused to share the stage with everybody else. Reagan likes to mess with debates. We'll talk about this later. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, this, this sets up kind of the, the, the key primary fight between Reagan and Bush. Reagan would go on to win New Hampshire. Um, Reagan, this is where he was able to spread his message of supply-side economics and argue that lower tax rates would increase tax revenues, uh, which is an idea that Bush famously dismissed as, quote, voodoo economics. Anyone who's seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off would remember that quote. Well, voodoo or not, it worked for Reagan. He ended up winning... 44 states, which only won six. And yeah, he just kind of coasted to the nomination after a point. Cool. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about who they chose for their VPs. I'll start with Carter, just because it's easy. Carter keeps Mondale on the ticket, that good old Minnesota boy. It kind of projects stability, um, and, I, and I think keeping him on the ticket, it, it's sort of what Carter also did in 76 when he chose Mondale. It's like, you're keeping this liberal northern senator, and maybe this round you're alleviating some of that like concern from the more liberal Ted Kennedy. Not a surprise that Carter keeps Mondale on the ticket, I think. Yeah, and so Reagan, his, even though the primary campaign was kind of uneventful, uh, his running mate selection was actually anything but. So he considered a lot of people, including the aforementioned Howard Baker. He uh, considered former Treasury Secretary William Simon, New York Congressman and former AFL MVP Jack Kemp, Indiana Senator Richard Luger, and Nevada Senator Pat Paul Laxalt, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But by far the most interesting name he floated was former President Gerald Ford, the man who had defeated Reagan in the primary four years earlier, and then, of course, would lose the general election to Jimmy Carter. This was actually seriously considered, and it was pitched from Reagan to Ford as a co-presidency to heal the rift between the conservative and moderate faction of the Republican Party. The thinking going that in, like, such an arrangement, Reagan would have the final say on everything, 
but Ford would essentially be able to dictate who filled out the cabinet. Specifically, he felt very strongly that Henry Kissinger should prize his role Secretary of State, and Alan Greenspan should be Secretary of the Treasury. This got so serious that Ford actually discussed this possibility with Walter Cronkite on television during the Republican National Convention. Basically said, yeah, if he asked me, he didn't didn't deny that he would take the position. Mm. Um, Eventually, negotiations between the two camps broke down, and Reagan picked uh, his more recent primary rival, George H.W. Bush, as his running mate. Um, The decision was made less than 24 hours before it was announced, and not everyone received it well. A certain Reaganite still held a grudge against Bush from the primary, and they wanted South Carolina Senator Jesse Helms instead. Bush would cruise to victory on the first ballot of the convention, but Helms and Jack Kemp did end up winning over 2% of the vote in what would become the last contested vice presidential nomination. Bush, he was the son of Connecticut Senator and first Planned Parenthood Treasurer Prescott Bush, he may have actually one of like the most impressive resumes of any vice presidential pick possibly ever. Uh, during World War II, he flew combat missions in the Pacific Theater. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross after he narrowly escaped death and actually cannibalism at the hands of Japanese soldiers. After moving to Texas, making a living in the oil business, uh, he became a Republican leader in the state, and his first entree into electoral politics was a failed bid to unseat former running mate to pick Ralph Yarborough from the Senate. He would eventually win a seat in the House in 1966, Although well, he tended to vote conservatively and, and appeared conservative, he went as far as to support Barry Goldwater over Nelson Rockefeller in the 64 convention, he did break with the party on topics like birth control and did vote for the Civil Rights Act of 1968. He left his seat to try and beat Yarborough again in 1970, but he lost. However, Richard Nixon would end up appointing him ambassador to the United Nations, which kicks off a run in which he served as chairman of the Republican National Committee, where he succeeded Bob Dole, chief of the U.S. liaison, of the People's Republic of China, or as we might call today, Ambassador to China. I wonder why we changed the name yeah. on that. <laughs> and finally, CIA Director. A scion of the old Eastern establishment, an ostensible Southerner with a moderate record and a wealth of foreign policy experience, which was a perfect complement to Reagan, who was a Westerner who had no federal or foreign policy experience and appealed to the growing conservative movement. Cool. <laughs> uh, go Bush. Uh, as I said, Reagan's going to be a problem when it comes to debates. Here's what happened. We usually talk about the VP debates. The VP debate was canceled, and there was only one presidential debate because there was a standoff involving whether or not John Anderson, who was the third-party candidate, would be included. Reagan really wanted him, and Carter was like, absolutely not. So everything broke down, and they only debated once. Which is interesting because you think it'd be the other way around, right? (laughs) Right, because Anderson is a Republican, or former Republican, presumably would drain votes. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, election day rolls around, and of course, in the end, Reagan kind of sweeps the nation. I, I think people often forget that in the weeks before this election, the result was actually very, very close. It's like polls showed this kind of like a dead heat. Carter uh, became the first Democratic president to lose re-election in nearly 100 years, which is nuts, and the only one since, actually. True. Weird other fun fact, Carter is the only post-Civil War Democrat to serve exactly one term. Reagan won 44 states and over 50% of the vote, with Carter nearly 10% of the vote behind and with only six states and, of course, our lovely District of Columbia. Mm. Uh, as for what happened to Mondale, uh, after the defeat, he, he, he licks his wounds um, and goes on to become the nominee for the Democrats in 1984. He, of course, loses in a landslide 49 states to one, the greatest electoral college defeat of all time in electoral votes not in percentage. Nonetheless, he went on to become an ambassador in the Clinton years, and then he ran for the Senate seat in Minnesota again in 2002, which he lost. But he stayed politically active. We talked about this last episode. You know, he supported Hillary Clinton, Amy Klobuchar, Barack Obama. And we talked about how he and Carter are both alive. To this day, they're the longest living post-presidential team in American history. The team that they beat is actually 
John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Huh. Isn't that nuts? That is interesting. Yeah. Um, what happened to Bush? Well, he would, of course, be elected vice president, and a mere three months into his term as vice president, Reagan would be shot by John Hinckley Jr., which incapacitated the newly elected president for about two weeks, during which time Bush presided over cabinet meetings and briefed the press, which kind of shone a spotlight on a role that he had kind of hoped to downplay a little bit and stay in the background. Throughout the two terms, he would serve as vice president. He took an active role in a handful of domestic policy task forces and foreign policy as well, and was also implicated but never convicted in the Iran-Contra scandal like pretty much everyone else in the Reagan administration. Bush would be elected to the presidency in his own right in 1988 for what would be an eventful term that included the end of the Cold War, the Persian Gulf War, and the negotiation of NAFTA. He'd lose his bid for re-election to Bill Clinton in 1992, but the Bush political dynasty lives on. Two of his sons, Jeb and George W., would go on to govern Florida and Texas respectively, and of course, as I'm sure you all know, W. himself would serve two terms as president. To this day, his grandson, George Prescott Bush, the son of Jeb, currently serves as Texas Land Commissioner. There's also Billy Bush. Yes, yes, who also has an infamous role to play in electoral politics. Um, great. Bush is interesting. Yeah, I, I just want to talk about Bush is interesting. He's kind of um, nerdier than you'd expect, mm-hmm. right? He is. He, he's kind of like a wonk almost. And I didn't really realize this until he passed away last year how much sort of bureaucratic experience he had yeah you know and it's it just it's very weird to think of a like director of the cia being nominated for vice president nowadays right yeah like you know you see obviously like hillary clinton ran 2016 to form secretary of state but she was also hillary clinton and people knew her even they didn't actually know what her job was it's just weird for someone with such a bureaucratic background to be on the ticket which really hasn't happened since yeah cool all right Moving right along to the main piece, Mike and I each came to the table with five alternative picks for Reagan's running mate, and since Carter's the incumbent, we'll do uh, just two for him, like we did for Nixon in 72. Let's start with the Republican ticket. You want to go first, Mike? Sure. Uh, So I chose the aforementioned Paul Laxalt, senator from Nevada and former governor of Nevada. He and Reagan were really good friends. Uh, He was referred to as the first friend when Reagan was governor because they governed bordering states. And they, they worked a lot together on things on like the Lake Tahoe region and, and all of that. They, they, they worked a lot together and they got along. And Laxalt, he, he was a staunch conservative, but he also had kind of a practical and moderate streak within him too. He purged the Nevada State Party of the John Burke Society. He didn't think they were a very good influence on the, the party. So he, he, he has a record of keeping sort of more rat, radical elements of the party in check. He worked on state prison reform. He actually visited a prison while, like, it was in the throes of an uprising. People were like, Mr. Governor, aren't you where he goes, ah, I was a lawyer. Some of these people were my clients. It would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, even though he wasn't conservative, he did raise taxes when it was necessary, and he ended up leaving uh, the state with a budget surplus. People described him as a straight shooter, communicated well with both sides. He was apparently a very friendly guy, but he had, a, he had an anti-Carter resume, right? He fought him in a lot of things. And he also basically kind of managed Reagan's 76 campaign and was credited with its even though he didn't win it's you know it did much better than you would expect it to do so he's credited with that too i picked him because he and reagan are already friends he's got a good record he seems like a friendly guy even though you know it's kind of i talked about this with milton Schapp in our last episode where he seemed like the example of sort of like liberal governance working and like you could use pennsylvania as an example of like where a liberal governor worked i think you could use that with conservative governance Hmm. and nevada you know he left the state with a budget surplus 
he served it well, and he wasn't a firebrand like Goldwater or anything like that. He was a practical guy who, you know, thought taxes should be lower, but raised them when he had to. Biggest weakness I see with this, though, is just a lack of geographic balance. They're states right next to each other. Yeah. It's not like the West. Outside of California, there aren't, like, a lot of big prizes in the West. Reagan kind of, I feel like, had California pretty sewn up anyway. So, yeah, like I said, just a, a staunch conservative friend of Reagan seems like a, a solid dude who would do well. First friend, huh? Yeah. So, yeah. Reagan and Laxalt, we got a Nixon, <laughs> B.B. Rebozo situation maybe, going. Maybe. The, the geographic thing is probably the main thing. Thing. Like I don't, like I don't see what you get geographically, but maybe that's fine. Mm-hmm. What I will say, and this is a thing that I'm glad we're talking about now because it's going to come up several more times. He's up for re-election as a senator in 1980. Mm-hmm. The 1980 Senate election is nuts. I was reading about it for like an hour today. It's a 12 seat swing. Wow, <laughs> it's nuts. The Democrats had the Senate 58, Republicans had 41 seats. There was one independent. After the election, Democrats would have 46 seats and Republicans would have about 54. Mm. This is the election that wipes out a number of running mates' faves, by the way. Birch by Frank Church, Gaylord Nelson, and major big-time loser George McGovern all lose their <laughs> Senate seats in this election. Like, the big swing kind of takes the argument away from that, but they wouldn't know that at the time, right? Mm-hmm. He, when he ran the last time, by the way, he beats Harry Reid, this, mm-hmm. this, the, the election prior. Um, yeah. It was very close. He won by only 700 votes. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if stops Republicans who are anxious to get the Senate for the first time in for freaking ever mm-hmm. um, to get any part of Congress for the first part yeah. for freaking ever yeah. if that like hesitates yeah yeah, that, that makes sense other than that I think he's good <laughs> yeah yeah he's, he's got he's got the feral experience Reagan doesn't yeah cool for my number five I went with John Warner uh, senator from Virginia he's also the husband of Elizabeth Taylor Mm. Uh, which is weird, um, but whatever. He's a former Secretary of the Navy as well, so you get uh, some of that military experience, but like high-level military experience that I don't think Reagan has. Mm. And I also think uh, Virginia is still probably considered a southern state at this point. Mm. Definitely is. I think this is a good geographic and ideological balance against Reagan, that they're distinctly on the opposite sides of the country. Virginia is also kind of Carter territory, right? You're more towards the south, Carter would mostly lose the South anyway, but all the close states are more or less in the South in this election. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how Carter beat Ford, is Ford kind of won everything but the South. Mm-hmm. Is like Carter just like accumulated a huge block there. Yeah, I think this is like a pretty decent pick. I, I didn't go with it. He just seemed a little too much of like a Rockefeller Republican to have it make sense on a Reagan ticket. Like I know yeah. like we talk about Bush as being, like, the moderate compliment to Reagan, but, like, Bush was, like, not a Rockefeller Republican. He wasn't necessarily a hardcore Reaganite, but he was also, like, you know, he, he identified as a conservative. It, it seems like the Rockefeller Republicans are very much waning in influence and kind of starting to die. But at the same time, you know, maybe maybe that's also what makes him appealing. If there are some people who are maybe skeptical of Reagan and think he's a little too far right, and they see someone like John Warner running, that makes them feel more comfortable voting for the ticket. So yeah, he <laughs> he would end up becoming like very liberal, like later he, on. His yes, career. and he was actually like kind of a big problem for Reagan. Mm. He was instrumental in defeating uh, Bork Bork's nomination. Yeah, <laughs> Bork. <laughs> yeah, I think he's one of only two I picked from the South. And he, uh, if if Reagan's really trying to sell this, like the entire nation is is with me, is I think he needs more geographic diversity. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Number four. 
Okay, so this is going to get interesting. Both of our picks here will be interesting in relation to the other person, and we'll see why. Um, so I chose Charlie Percy, who's a senator from Illinois. Uh, I believe in the first episode you picked him for Nixon? I did, yes. I had him as, I think, my second choice for Nixon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this guy, you know, very much, even though I talked about Warner being a uh, Rockefeller Republican, making that not a good choice, Percy is very much a Rockefeller Republican. He worked a lot on legislation regarding, like, low-cost housing. He, he voted to confirm Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court. And he also talked about how much he loved the autobiography of Malcolm X. Every white person should read it. <laughs> I don't think any politician in either party could say without getting a lot of crap from either side. Someone will get upset about that today. Yeah. Probably got upset about back then, too. Yeah. Anyway, point is, he was, like, one of those guys who everybody thought should run and will eventually run for president basically for like 20 years. In the late 60s, he was described as the hottest political article in the Republican Party. I chose him because, you know, he, he comes from like the middle of the country. He comes from a big state too. It's helpful. It gives Reagan some geographic balance. He has some foreign policy legislative experience. I have him lo here lower though than I would because his race in 78 it did not leave him looking good. You know, he was he was considered kind of like invincible and kind of impervious. And so the Democrats didn't really try very hard to, to draft somebody to, to challenge him. They chose this guy named Alex Scythe, who like the highest office the dude had held was he was appointed to the Cook County Zoning Board of Appeals for like 12 years. The thing about Scythe though was that he was like a very hard line anti-communist when it came to foreign policy. Percy was seen as more liberal on the issue and so that actually ended up hurting him a lot and polling seemed, was, was like very close. Percy was actually like on TV like days before the votes were supposed to come in and he was like crying on TV like pleading with the voters to give him a second chance. Did he and actually cry? It, and according to Wikipedia, it says he had tears in his eyes. Okay. And he did end up winning, like, 53 to 46, which, you know, against that kind of a challenge is, like, not a great sign. So, right. you know, like I said, he comes from sort of the opposite wing of the party as Reagan, which I think is helpful ideologically. He comes from not quite the opposite side of the country, but further from California than Reagan, which I think is helpful. But it does seem like his his popularity is winning a bit by the time this election rolled around. Yeah, he's actually my number one choice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the reason I like him, like at this point he'd have served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the last four Congresses. And yeah, he is regarded as a moderate Rockefeller Republican, but I think this bridges a gap that Reagan maybe realized still exists. Mm -hmm. the last several times he's run for president is like he mm, does need fair. to bring yeah. his party together and maybe this time he wants to learn that lesson mm -hmm. but i also think it doesn't fully concede it right yeah, this isn't a california new york ticket this is kind of a compromise this is this is a california illinois ticket and you think of mm -hmm. illinois it's like the most big you can get by, by still being in the heartland right yeah, yeah. so it's like we are not the elitist snobs we are of the people but we are still geographically diverse mm -hmm. I think the Illinois angle helps keep Anderson at bay. That's running as an independent. Yeah. Fun fact, Illinois is also the tipping point state. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> Reagan's going to win a lot more than that, but mm -hmm. uh, I think he wins it by, yeah, almost 8%. Yeah. It is not close, and there are maybe 15 states that he wins with less than that between him and Carter's first state. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I think he's really good, and he's not up for re-election. True, true. Cool, my number four is Howard Baker, who is the senator from Tennessee at this point, and he's the Senate Minority Leader. <laughs> I promise this will probably be my last congressional leadership pick. <laughs> I know I've been dinged on that before, but I actually think Reagan needs a congressional leader, and he needs to smooth the bridge over with not even Rockefeller Republicans, but establishment Republicans at this point. 
Um, and I think Baker is like the best way to do that. I mean, even though the state count doesn't matter much, Tennessee only goes for Reagan by like about 0.3%. It is one of the closest states. Obviously, he doesn't need it anyway. But, but yeah, I, I just think Baker as a symbol of like goodwill to the establishment to the party works really well. Yeah, uh, so I had Howard Baker as my number one. <laughs> yeah, if, so for like a lot of the things you said, I agree with, right? I, I, he's not exactly, you know, like rocket fire moderate Republican, but he is the establishment and it does kind of make some peace with the establishment after, you know, the Reagan acts have been kind of like mucking things about for a little bit. And I, I think it does give Reagan who, granted, he did serve two terms as the governor of the largest state in the union, a not insignificant portion of the population so just thinks of him as that actor from cowboy movies and from bedtime to bonzo, right? He's still not taken entirely seriously, I think, really until he becomes president. I think Baker gives him that credibility. And also I think being from the South helps, right? I picked Thad Cochran as my number two pick last episode because he was a Republican from the South. And you know, Republicans in the South up until this point was really not a winning formula, but clearly Cochran had figured something out and whatever. Right. Clearly Baker's figured something out too. And I think that helps, you know, kind of help turn. Reagan was very clearly courting the South throughout his campaign. Yeah. In sometimes very controversial ways, like mentioning states' rights a lot at certain Southern events. And it's actually suggested that the reason he won the South Carolina primary was because he floated that Connolly was courting the black vote and that upset some white voters. Oh, Reagan. Um, well, it was all Lee Atwater's idea, of course. But yeah, yeah. So I, I think Baker works with the credibility thing. He also, if you're a person who is worried that Reagan's like a little bit of a loon, if, if you think Bush was right about the food economics and you think maybe Reagan's a bit of a demagogue, Baker had a history of standing up to demagogue-ish presidents in his own party, actually. He was very active in the Watergate investigations, and he's actually the man who very famously said, what did the president know and when did he know it? And so his credentials in opposing misbehaving executives might give some Reagan skeptics peace of mind. He also supported the Clean Air Act, which, you know, might also sway some liberals in that regard. Like, his nickname was the Great Conciliator. He knew how to work with people. And I think when you have an outsider like Reagan who doesn't have as much experience, you need someone who knows how to work with people. And I think Baker does that. Yeah. All right. Let's try not to do this again. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I. I agree. Yeah. I just think he. He just hits that note really well of of not quite Rockefeller, still Southern, but also establishment. It, it allows Reagan to compromise without compromising who he is. Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Number three. So number three, I had Donald Rumsfeld. Rummy. Who at this point is the former Secretary of Defense. He'd gone into business after the Ford administration, but he was also, of course, one of Ford's chiefs of staff in the White House. He's also U.S. Ambassador to NATO, director of the Cost of Living Council, counselor to the president, director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, and of course, a congressman from Illinois. Why do I list off all those qualifications? Well, because it helps give you context, and also because he's key, he's, he's a little bit of a parallel to Bush, right? You know, he was, he was a congressman for a little bit, and then he served in a lot of more bureaucratic roles, a lot of them foreign policy facing. And so I think he basically does for Reagan what Bush also did for him. Well, he came from Illinois too, which is like not a small state, of course. We were just talking about Illinois. And he, he's a bit of an insider when it comes to the White House. He knows how things work. He gives Reagan foreign policy credentials. You know, are people really gonna like remember him that much? Who knows? But you know, also you think about the time where Carter looks really weak on foreign policy. And as much as the Republicans kind of slagged Ford for the way he handled Vietnam and like the Helsinki Accords, 
I mean, he didn't get a bunch of people kidnapped in Iran, right? Yeah. You know, it probably looked pretty good from now. So if you're looking for sort of like strength and intelligence when it comes to foreign policy, Rumsfeld seems like a good choice. Yeah, I I think I breezed past him too quickly when I was picking my... Mm. I was like, ah, the rummy, ah, that's funny. He is probably more serious of a contender than I originally thought. The Illinois thing, so you hit, head off Anderson, that's good. Mm. Reagan Rumsfeld kind of has a good sound. <laughs> uh, I, like, I don't hate it. There's some weird history with Milton Freeman here. Well, yeah, no, he, Nobel Prize winning economist. Yeah, he, he like really wanted uh, him to be vice president. <laughs> right, yeah, because he Rumsfeld. You know, he went. He went to like a lot of his lectures at the University of Chicago. Yeah, like he was a student of like basically the people who very much directly influenced Reagan's economic policy. Friedman, like, really hated Bush, too. And he thought... Apparently Rumsfeld did, too. Oh, really? They, like, did not get along while Bush was... Like, Bush thought that he, as Secretary of Defense, was, like, undermining Bush's authority as director of the CIA. Oof. Yeah. Friedman said that Bush was, quote, the worst decision not only of his campaign, but of his presidency, referring to, like, Reagan choosing Bush. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, it's just interesting. He is kind of, like, not quite the foil to Bush, but he's, like, a mere world version of Bush. Mm. It's, it's like they could have been twins separated at birth at this yeah. point. It's very... Yeah. <laughs> so if you think Bush is a good pick... Rummy is also a good pick. Right. Yeah. The one thing I do think Bush has going for him is he is a descendant of, like, the old Eastern establishment. Mm. So he feels a little less insurgent and a little more... If you're looking for a steady hand to guide the Reagan presidency. Right. Um, whereas Rumsfeld... I mean, maybe just because what we know about him now. But, yeah. like, yeah. he seems like a little bit more of, like, a... Seems kind of meaner. R- Bush has a more <laughs> down-to-earth vibe. Yeah. 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 Rummy's a little, like... He comes across kind of hard. There's, according to Wikipedia, he was often ribbed while he was young about looking like a, quote, tough German. (laughs) And we don't like those, do we? (laughs) We do not. Cool. I have a similar-ish pick for my number three, who is Alexander Haig. He was NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. (laughs) He's also the former chief of staff under Nixon. My, My thought here is, like, are you worried that Reagan isn't foreign policy ready? Drop in the big fucking gun. Drop in the NATO Supreme Allied Commander. It's just so good. You, you, like, you think Carter is a foreign policy disaster. You want like a real tough guy who's going to be tough with these foreign irritants. What are you going to say? What are you going to say if it's Haig? I, I will concede that his, his White House Chief of Staff experience under Nixon is, is a little dicey, which is why <laughs> he's only number three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he balances Reagan out nicely in sort of what we talked about. The stuff that Reagan is less versed in, which is like defense and foreign policy. And, like, it draws attention to Carter's biggest liabilities. Mm -hmm. He would, of course, go on to be Secretary of State under Reagan and declare that he was in charge when Reagan was shot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That was a big... He he very quickly fell out of favor with Reagan. Um, So, them sharing a ticket would be interesting. I I had Haig as my number two Mm. for basically everything you said. Yeah, if, if, if your opponent's biggest weakness is their failures in foreign policy then uh, why not pick a general? Yeah. And why not pick a guy who, you know, and you're just like, you know, who else was NATO Supreme Allied Commander? Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. You liked him, right? You liked the way the Republicans ran the country when he was president, right? So I think that's a pretty good choice. He just lends Reagan a lot of credibility when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, I don't really know that I have, like, a ton more to add. I, you know, I think if you were to point out a weakness, it's that he's not held elected office before. Um, Neither had George Washington. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's just not true. I think Washington was elected like the House of Burgesses, but oh. uh, but Eisenhower hadn't. Um, but at the same time, Eisenhower is also like a recognizable war hero. So you know maybe that's a problem. And it seemed basically based on what I could read, you know, Reagan was actually very it seemed domestic policy focused on like his first term. 
and certainly in the campaign. Yeah. But and even in that case, I think Hig even makes that much more sense. Mm. Um, if you have a domestically focused president, you should have a foreign-focused vice president who can kind of help connect the dots for someone who, who had not had a lot of interaction with foreign leaders before. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of Obama, Biden, Bush, Cheney. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. Higgs, your number two. Yeah. Um, so we'll skip up to my number two. I, like, really talked myself into this. I went with Jack Kemp, who's this, like, up-and-coming, handsome congressman from New York. He's a football star before he became a congressman. He's, he's, he's very handsome. He's very charismatic. He's, like, very... He becomes very tight with Reagan and kind of that brand of conservatism. Like, especially the supply-side economics bullshit. I mean, uh, <laughs> theories. Like, I, I just see him as, like, the perfect Reagan Jr., right? He's He's got kind of political celebrity. He's got this charisma. He's got this ideological compatibility. And you, you do actually get the New York vibe and the East-Northeast without getting Rockefeller. You get the exact opposite of Rockefeller in the party. And maybe Reagan worries that he's going to get outshined by Kemp with all of that charisma, but I think it's more of like a recognition of the next generation thing. It's kind of like a Romney-Ryan pick. Yeah, I was going to say. Very much a Paul Ryan vibe. I mentioned this book on our last episode, The Gang of Five, which is about kind of the rise of the modern American conservative movement. And it talks about how Jack Kemp was adored by like the young conservatives in the country. And they basically were begging Reagan to pick him as vice president. Like they made signs at the convention and everything. And they hated George H.W. Bush like so much. They called him a squish all the time. A squish. This squish because he he wasn't a strong enough conservative. He was squishy on certain issues. They loved Kemp. And so I think, yeah, it makes sense, obviously, ideologically. It kind of does make sense regionally as well. I guess my, my one of my concerns might be is that, you know, if you have someone who, and whatever political disagreements I might have with Ronald Reagan, um, you know, I do think he does sometimes get, like, I, the, the way he does get kind of dismissed as, like, an actor, which obviously he was, is a little unfair considering, like I said, he was a two-term governor of the largest state in the Union. Yeah. And... You know, while by this point, Kemp would have had been like a four-term congressman, I, I think that if you if you, if you you take someone who I think certain amounts of people are still just kind of considering an actor, and you pair them with someone who maybe a lot of people just kind of like a handsome football player, maybe there's a little bit of a credibility problem in the electorate. And they're like, we don't really want to vote for like, we'll vote for one celebrity, we won't vote for two celebrities, you know what I mean? But again, like I, I think otherwise, if you think of... And who knows what, Who knows how many people actually remember Jack Kemp. He, he wasn't, like, winning Super Bowls or anything. He was in the, you know, American Football League, which was not the National Football League. And he, was in, he, was in, he was in the smaller league, but he was MVP, so he was, like, a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe that helps. Well, and, and I think a common critique against Reagan was his age. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he'd be 69 when he was inaugurated. Kemp's only 45. Mm-hmm. When all this is going on, that's true. Maybe, maybe it's good to have like mm-hmm. a younger, ideologically compatible person next to you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just really like that he also captures the like. This is a, <laughs> I keep saying it, it's like this is a movement that is countrywide, and like even in New York, the most like elitist, snobbiest place. This guy is with. He's us. from Buffalo. Oh, yeah, okay. I don't think people are thinking of Buffalo as like a snobby place. Yeah, okay. <laughs> It's like this, it's a, everyone is on board with this new brand of conservatism, Mm -hmm. even the young up-and-comer Jack Kemp. And like even Paul Ryan was only like a six-term congressman when he was put on the ticket. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, apparently he was very popular with minority groups. 
The thing they also said that worked in his favor, contrasted to a lot of Republicans, is that he wasn't like an Ivy League graduate. He was just kind of seen as like a normal guy, like a man's man, who sort of like, you know, delivered. He, he wasn't descending from the University of Chicago being like, ah, my arcane economic theories say we should cut all the taxes. He, he was just doing it very plainly and, and kind of normally. Yeah. And he'd, of course, be Bob Dole's running mate in the mm-hmm. 90s. And would be, I believe, Bush's HUD secretary. Oh. Bush Sr. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so our number ones we talked about, Mike had Howard Baker, I had Charles Percy. Do we have any more to say about why we like them? I, 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 think, we, I think we got through We're it. good. All right, so that's who Reagan should have considered. He actually considered, we talked about that, we had Howard Baker, William Simon, Jack Kemp, Richard Lugar, Paul Laxalt, and Gerald Ford. So we got a lot of senators, most of whom aren't up for re-election. The, the military, I think this is our first like really big military pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, we'll do the we'll do quickly the Democratic ticket. So Carter, of course, leaves mm-hmm. Mondale on, but here are two people maybe he could have switched out for. Want to go first, Mike? Yeah. So I picked Gary Hart, senator from Colorado, perhaps nowadays most known for like infamously challenging a reporter to discover that if he was actually having an affair, and then the reporter found out that he was in fact having an affair and completely destroyed his political career. Um, <laughs> But before all that happened, he was just a charming and young senator from Colorado. He was popular, he was exciting, he was young, he was Western, he could inject energy into a flagging campaign, is is my thinking, right? He also, and I don't really know how important this is, but he tried to enlist in the Navy Reserves when it seemed likely that there could even be a war in the Persian Gulf Mm. as a result of the Iranian Revolution. In hindsight, I think a lot of people view that as kind of like a crass political maneuver as a way to kind of make it look like he was trying to do something when he never actually, like he he eventually got in, but he was apparently too old to actually join. So they had to like give him a special waiver and he really only served like 10 days in like the reserves. He never actually like went through his exercises or whatever. But, you know, look, Carter's kind of behind the eight ball here, even though it's close the days before it will not end close on election day. Um, so hindsight only gives us so much there. But, you know, if you're someone, if people think you're not doing enough, if people are burning raining flags outside the White House demanding you do more, pick a guy who actually said he would go on tour to fight them, right? Why not? And, you know, he, he's kind of from the part of the country that Reagan is. Just just inject some life into that campaign. Pick the handsome young guy and go with Gary Hart. Who is still married to his wife, by the way. Huh. Also, Gary Warren Hart Pence, which is his <laughs> real name... He was going to be my number two, but he's up for re-election. Like, once I figured out all that Senate shit, I decided to scrap him. Yeah, he's up for re-election in the Senate, and he would only win by, like, 50.2% of the vote in Colorado. I, I just think it's a very close state. I, Colorado was, like, a swing state, obviously, for a very long time. And, yeah, I don't think Democrats can afford to lose the Senate seat. Yeah, that, that's fair. So the, the person who's running against her name was uh, Mary Estelle Buchanan. She was the Colorado Secretary of State, and she accused him of being um, a McGovernate carpetbagger. Yeah. He's from Kansas. He moves <laughs> to Colorado. They're bordering states. I don't think that qualifies as carpetbagging. I mean, it's <laughs> ironic. She was born in San Francisco. <laughs> Whatever. All right, my number two uh, for Carter, I went with Sergeant Shriver. I'm just kidding. I went with North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt. This is kind of like a, we're, we're battering down the hatches pick. It's like, we're in for a fight. I don't think that he is better than keeping Mondale, but, you know, maybe he helps to try and firm up the, the rapidly evaporating states in the South. It's like, Carter's like, oh, fudge. Mm-hmm. My, my home turf, I'm losing it. Prop them up with a governor from the South, Jim Hunt. Fun fact, also about him, is after Carter's defeat in 1980, Hunt would go on to chair the perhaps infamous Hunt Commission, which was like the Democratic National Committee's commission on why are all of our candidates so bad. Mm -hmm. And it led to the creation of superdelegates, because 
Democrat, they thought Democrats kept nominating like non-consensus losers. Mm-hmm. You know, McGovern, Carter, <laughs> Mondale, Mondale, Dukakis. Um, yeah, this was a little before, but this was before that. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's it's, uh, it's like going back to his roots, going back to the well. Right, um, and he looks. I think he looks like positive. Like, yeah, I, you, you love a look. I do. I do like <laughs> a presidential look. Yeah, yeah. It, man, these like this is like the third episode we've picked a North Carolina governor for either ticket. They're great. <laughs> Their North Carolina governors are so cool. What a cool place. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's a decent pick. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, him being a governor, maybe. I don't know if it does hurt him at all, though. Because now Carter's been president right, for four yeah, years. Yeah. It's like, what you, <laughs> he doesn't have enough federal experience. And he, he kind of has foreign policy experience. He was the Ford Foundation. Economic advisor in Nepal, so hmm. I don't know if he helped Nepal at all, but he he would serve as governor for four terms too. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really have much to say about that. I don't I don't think he's better than Mondale, but he's, it is, and it would be like a sign of like, oh, we're panicking, we're just mm. protecting the home turf. I don't know. All right, on to our number one. So we both had Jerry Brown. We did. <laughs> Governor of California. Why, why did you put Jerry Brown? Well, you know, I thought he would be kind of like an energizing force for like kind of the young left wing of the party. Essentially, basically, Carter had an enthusiasm problem. Yeah. We'll talk about uh, someone else in the speed round who was even pulling better against Carter and better against Kennedy as well, even though he wasn't officially running. And basically, the, the, the thought was just that like people were just sick and tired of Carter. I think Jerry Brown, who's like probably around the same age, maybe a little younger than Carter. No, he's definitely younger than Carter. From like probably one of the more liberal states in the union, even though it would go very hard for Reagan and Reagan was governor. It's passing the, the baton to a younger generation. And also, like you have this in your notes, and, and I agree, you know, it, it could put Reagan on the defensive. Brown could say, well, look at this mess that Ronald Reagan left in California, and I'm here right. to clean it up, and I've been cleaning it up. The, thing, the interesting thing about Jerry Brown is that I feel like he, he kind of became, in some circles, synonymous with like California liberalism. At least in his early terms, you know, he was governor like a trillion times. At least like early on in his tenure, he was very fiscally conservative. Mm. Actually conservative about a lot of things. He left the state with a budget surplus, one of the biggest surpluses they've ever had. But he was also, you know, at the same time opposed to the death penalty and very enthusiastic with the environment. He did have some controversial opinions about Vietnamese immigrants. He said, I don't think California needs more poor people when referring to them. Oh, um, but he also appointed five judges to the California bench, which in the 70s was a pretty big deal. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he he's, he's liberal, but he's not, like, very liberal, at least certainly not by modern standards. Well, I think he trans... Because he, of course, becomes governor again yeah. <laughs> in yeah. recent history. I think he transforms well with how California transforms. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Yeah, he, he really sort of, like... I, I, in, in a past life, which is an odd thing for a 25-year-old to say, I, I worked for a nonprofit. And one of the people there uh, did a lot of, like, activism work in California. And, and his, his theory about California is basically that, like, if states are laboratories for democracy, then California is kind of the ultimate laboratory for democracy. Because there's so many people, and because they have such liberal, like, ballot measure laws, that, you like, a lot, a lot of stuff gets tried there. Mm. And I think Jerry Brown is a trailblazer in a lot of ways. Yeah. With environmentalism, you know, he was very early on decriminalized homosexual activity environment the gay rights he's, he's kind of a trailblazer and i think you can excite a lot of people who are maybe disappointed with the way that the democratic party went in 1968 who are maybe really into mcgovern even though he lost very lost a lot he didn't do well yeah i, I think that you know maybe jerry brown tried to capture some of that enthusiasm that Carter just can't drum up. Yeah, and he had, he had run in the primary with Kennedy against Carter this round. Jerry Brown is the kind of, like, bold pick you would make in mm. a situation where you know you're losing, 
and you know the left wing of your party is deserting you, and you're really not sure what to do. I just think it's a way to unite the party when you know you're going to lose. Yeah. He was also dating Linda Ronstadt at the time. Oh, good he, for He Jerry. didn't get married until 2005. Before not, he became governor again. <laughs> and not to Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. So Carter uh, actually considered no one. He stood by his man, good old Walter Mondale. All right, let's, let's quickly do the speed round. Any other fun names out there? Yeah, so Edmund Muskie, who was Carter's Secretary of State, um, he's the guy I alluded to earlier. He mm. was polling well against Carter in, like, hypothetical primary polls. Mm. And it get well against Kennedy, too, which kind of led to the theory that people aren't people don't want Kennedy. They just want someone who's not Carter. Don't you think having the Secretary of State run at this particular Ex- junction? Yes. <laughs> so I almost had Muskie as my number two for Carter. But then I was reading more about, like, the Iran hostage right. crisis and how involved Muskie was with it that. Was, like, the worst time and Secretary of State of all time. <laughs> there was a draft Muskie movement during the primary. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it would actually end up being very much a liability yeah. if you were chosen. Scoop Jackson, if you really want to go hard in defense, that certainly balances Carter out ideologically. I don't know how into it Scoop would be. I was reading basically where like a lot of the neocons who would form sort of Republican foreign policy in the 2000s worked for Scoop Jackson. Oh, <laughs> he boy. basically helped birth the neoconservative movement. Oh, um, so you're not a great pick. Other thing I had to say is why not John Glenn again? Because he's up for re-election in 1980. That's fair. That's why. I just didn't want to pick him twice in a row. All right, for the Republicans. Um, I put Richard Schweiker, uh, senator from Pennsylvania, of course, Reagan's quote-unquote running mate in 1976 <laughs> when he ran against Ford. I also put John Chafee, a senator from Rhode Island, former secretary of the Navy. Maybe you know his son. Lincoln. <laughs> James Buckley, we talked about him. Uh, he's a former senator from New York. John Hines, senator from Pennsylvania. I think he's very handsome. I think he looks good. Mm. And Bonzo the monkey. <laughs> Fun fact about James Buckley, he was uh, initially elected to the Senate not as a Republican, but rather a member of the New York Conservative Party. Mm. I actually did have one here that I wrote down kind of last minute. I had Phil Crane, congressman from Illinois, who was considered like very much like a conservative firebrand, like very, very conservative. He was possibly the last person to audit the bullying depository at Fort Knox, and he did it on TV. He took fiscal conservatism very very seriously well we aren't when did he do this like the 70s the mid-70s we weren't even on the gold standard anymore he still felt like he had to audit the the depository i I don't know what to tell you 1974 okay um yeah but and he, he was a big reagan booster he was chairman of the american conservative union he was very against giving the Panama Canal to Panama, very against the Salt Arms Treaty, but I didn't go with him just because he seemed like a little bit too much of like a, a raking copycat. Yeah. And as, as time wore on, and this is like, again, like a hindsight thing that would not, I wouldn't have been able to tell back then, but like as time wore on, he just did just kind of become like a foot soldier. Like he didn't really matter as time wore on. It just kind of faded into the background. So yeah. He'd become the longest serving Republican member of the House when he left in 2004. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. All right. So in, in conclusion, if you could change the running mate for the two candidates, would you? I don't think it would. I think Bush is a really good pick for Reagan. Okay. And I don't think Carter could have done anything that would have... I think the balance with Mondale makes... And again, I think if, if, you, if, you, if you're running into as many problems as Carter is dropping your running mate, I just think makes you look even worse. I agree for Carter. I, I, I've kind of realized that Walter Mondale is like a really solid dude, and he's like a really good choice. And... I sure hope he has nothing but good things happen to him <laughs> after this. Um, 
I, I think I... I kind of think I might for Reagan. I, I think Bush might be like one of the greatest vice presidential picks of all time. Mm. I mean, there's a reason I think we agreed on so many of these picks for Reagan is he could have picked any number of these people and it would have been really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think I'd still probably keep Bush. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. That's our show. You can once again find us everywhere that podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal for all your vice presidency-related needs. In the meantime, I've been Lars. And I'm Mike Levito. And we will catch you in our next episode on the 1984 annihilation between Ronald Reagan's re-election with H.W. Bush and Walter Mondale's pick of Geraldine Ferraro, first female on a major party presidential ticket. The election itself may not be contentious, but that Democratic VP pick (laughs) sure is. So stay tuned.